0: Oregon Employment First, supporting people with intellectual and developmental disabilities to work in community jobs. Learn more at iWorkWeSucceed.org. Hello, and welcome to the Oregon Employment First podcast. I'm Angela Yeager, Communications Officer with Employment First in the Office of Developmental Disability Services. Today we are discussing supported decision making which is an alternative to guardianship that allows people with disabilities to make choices about their lives with support from people that they trust. My guests today are Allison Enriquez, a policy analyst with the Office of Developmental Disability Services, and Sally Simich, Education Specialist for Secondary Transition at the Oregon Department of Education. Welcome to the show, Allison and Sally.
1: Hi, thank you.
0: Hi, thank you. Thank you both so much for being here today. So we're going to start off with our first question which I'm going to give to Allison. So Allison, can you please give a brief description of what is supported decision making and why is it important?
1: Yeah, supported decision making is when you use a trusted family member, a friend or professional for support or help to make decisions. This might look something like just support to gather information, do a little online research, help to think through some of the questions that you might want to ask your doctor, but it might also be support to really think through and evaluate your options and weigh the pros and cons, that type of thing. Or it might really just be support to communicate what your decision is to other people. But really the key is that the person is making their own decisions and supported decision making is important because it's, you know, perhaps the least restrictive option in what we consider to be a continuum of decision making support. And, and all this probably sounds pretty familiar because it's something we all do. Um, I know myself, you know, I like to have. Um, Family members, namely my mom, support me to make decisions about medical procedures, um, but I prefer to talk with uh, professionals about how to manage my money. Um, And then I look to my friends, um, some of my closest friends, when I'm thinking and making decisions about um, relationships. Um, But supported decision-making, I think it's important to state it's been best practice in the field of supporting individuals with disabilities for decades. So it all sounds probably pretty familiar. And, and decades of research shows that people are making their own decisions, have better outcomes, they're more independent and integrated in their communities, they're better employed and healthier and, and also better able to recognize and, and resist abuse. And so with all that, we've seen in recent years just a large increase in the number of states That are calling out supported decision making in state law. Um, And and the goal of this is, is really just to ensure that it isn't overlooked as a less restrictive option to be explored before guardianship and other types of more restrictive decision making supports. And that legislation, too, is also designed to ensure that other entities like banks and medical providers, courts, that they also recognize. supported decision-making as a reasonable accommodation. So yeah, there might be some important instances where supported decision-making can be an important accommodation for folks to ask for.
0: And I think, uh, Allison, if I may bring this up, it seems like it's more important than ever. Um, You know, we've seen throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, for instance, um, you know a lot of advocacy um, in the in the community in Oregon and and elsewhere about for instance being able to have a support person to go with someone to the hospital or to a doctor's appointment um, you know the need to have support people for people with disabilities um, so they can make informed medical decisions and so um of course support decision making is much broader than just in a medical or hospital mode but I think that's a A really concrete example of where it can really be um, a really important resource for people.
1: Yeah, exactly. Excellent. And yeah, there was um, another Senate bill. It was Senate Bill One Six O Six, where you know just explicitly recognizing the right to have a support person with you to help you gather information, evaluate it, and communicate that decision to others. And it was just an explicit recognition. Of um you know what I think many would consider an already existing right, but oftentimes um it does help to explicitly call it out so that people understand and recognize it
0: yeah, and so that's that leads us greatly into our next question, uh which is for Sally, so tell me, Sally, about the law regarding supported decision making that went into effect on January first of this year twenty twenty two What does it require of the Oregon Department of Human Services and the Oregon Department of Education?
2: Yes. During the 2022 legislative session, House Bill 1501 was passed, and it went into effect as of January 1st, 2022. This House Bill requires schools to provide the information for training, the um, resources that school personnel would need on supported decision-making as an alternative to guardianship. At each individual education program meeting an IEP, that includes the discussion of post-secondary goals and transition school uh, services. School districts must provide resources for individuals and families on supported decision-making and how they can remain engaged in secondary education and their post-school outcomes. You know, the earlier version of House Bill 2105 also required that DHS make training information or resources available regarding supported decision making. DHS and ODE continue to partner together and with stakeholders to, to you know, identify uh, existing resources and also make sure resources are developed. We are um, looking at best practices emerging regarding supported decision making and a part of the state plan through the technical assistance center on transition supported decision making is one of our goals and we work in a group together with agencies VR, DD, ODE, CTE and we have a parent stakeholder that helps with those goals Most of the goals in the state plan are carried through and followed in training with our technical assistance network that works throughout the state of Oregon. Great. And
0: Sally, you mentioned um, uh, ODHS's part in um, in providing some training and resources, and we've started with that with a a website we have launched. Uh, I'm going to plug that URL right now. It will also be linked on this podcast. It is Oregon dot gov backslash DHS backslash supported hyphen decision hyphen making. Um, And you can also um, just put into any search engine or Google supported decision making Oregon, and it actually comes up um, really high up there. So, um, so I will move on to the next question, which is, um, so can you tell me, uh, Sally, that supported decision making is recognized as a national best
2: practice? Yes, it is. Recognized as a best practice. And in all cases in education, when we're planning for transition for individuals with disability, we want to always look through the lens of the least restrictive option. So it should be the same when we're planning for post secondary goals, transition services, and alternatives to guardianship. When we inform a family of their transfer of rights, we want to always make sure that we're not just talking guardianship that we talk to them about those alternatives to guardianship, which supported decision-making would be one of those. When we think about the research, Allison mentioned earlier that we wanna make sure that we're using curriculum to teach students around supported decision-making. It's actually a process that we use throughout school. Parents are involved in all decisions at IEP meetings, and we don't want that to go away. Those supports need to stay in place if that person continues to want that and be able to ask questions of others rather than just maybe their IEP team. So the research shows that when we do help people learn to make decisions for their, you know, their self and their life, they have a greater sense of self-determination and tend to have their um, a healthier lifestyle. They show more dependence. They're able to get out, do things They have uh, increased motivation for learning about things, for possibly exploring job options, becoming involved in social activities in their community. They're able to research a job, which could be a better job than the one that they've started out in, or actually work into a career. And they also need to be able to look at their health and well being and to recognize when things are going well for them and when there possibly could be some abuse involved in their environment. So we really want people to look at through the lens of that supported decision making piece of having others there to help support them while they make decisions.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a great point, Sally, to bring up, you know, all all of us here in this conversation have been involved with Employment First since early on, and we know from Employment First and the work we've done there to help people get jobs in the community that people that are tend to be a little bit more independent that have large networks of you know friends family etc tend to you know tended to be more likely to seek community employment as well and so it kind of fits in with all of these things you've talked about uh, around supported decision making. So we're gonna take a quick break here for a little word from our, I was gonna say our sponsors, but we sponsor ourselves. So it's a little word about some of the things we're doing here in the Office of Developmental Disabilities and Employment First. So we'll take a quick break.
1: Do you want a career that makes a difference? Consider a job where you get to work with people with developmental disabilities. ImpactOregon.careers is a new website. It's where you'll find hundreds of careers to choose from that make a real difference. Jobs range from direct care to administrative and technical fields, from entry level to advanced. Find a career where you can help change someone's life. Go to ImpactOregon.careers. This message is from the Office of Developmental Disability Services and the Oregon Association of Broadcasters.
0: Okay, and we are back uh, with our podcast on supported decision making. I'm here with Allison Enriquez from the Office of Developmental Disability Services and Sally Simich with the Oregon Department of Education. So I have another question for you, Sally, which is um, what kind of training information and resources have been provided on supported decision making?
2: Yeah, I'm really excited to be able to share this information with you because we, um, when we first heard about House Bill 2105, it was um, a quick hurry up and get it done because it was to be effective as of uh, January 1st in 2022. And with schools um, in session and then being out of session and um, teachers um, being sick uh, during the pandemic and staff being out, it's, you know, we're like, oh, my goodness, how are we going to be able to do this? But we've actually figured it out. And we um, provided a train-to-trainer t- training to 34 members of the Transition Technical Assistance Network, which um, that network um, includes transition network facilitators. It includes, includes um, transition network facilitators and pre-employment transition services support people. It um, includes the pre-ETS, people from VR, the coordinators, excuse me, from VR. And it also includes the uh, specialists from ODD to help um, be able to go out and, and train the educational staff or the staff that they may be working around. So that was really exciting that we got that done. And then we were able to kick off House Bill 2105 at the October COSA Special Education Directors Conference. And at that time, um, districts were told that Transition Network Facilitators, or what we call TNFs, were ready to be available to do training with their staffs. So after that, ODE reviewed the law, and at the end of October, um, we have a monthly special education director's call. And this allowed for questions and reminding, you again, that people within the t 10 were available for training. So if, there's, if they wanted training with their staff, that we could come out and do that. To this date, the TNFs have contacted every school district in their region. There um, and they are set, they have set up trainings and continue to train. We have six ESD SPED directors um, meetings that they have covered, 22 district trainings. We did um, seven to 12 one on one trainings. We've trained ESD staffs. We've done multiple agencies across counties and we've covered it in PLCs. So I'm really excited about the. Uh, information getting out there and people being willing to be trained on it and use it as their IEPs um, became into effect in, on Jan, in January of 2022. Two of the most frequent questions um, that have come out of the training is where do we um, want this documented and where will there be official guidance from ODE? So the documentation, should be decided at a district level so where you document this is at a district level decision and the only thing that we've asked them is to please be consistent in where this would be located for each iep so if they decide they're going to document it in meeting notes or they're going to document it on the present level page but that's a decision that the district would make with their staff so they know that they That they have shared the information around supported decision making. Then ODE did an engagement survey with the special education directors, and the special education directors gave feedback on what the guidance could be, and that's still being reviewed. So that's to be arranged. But you know, should we go back and put um, something in the procedural safeguards that are sent out to parents? Should there be um, a, a form review and update, should there be something put on that transfer of rights form that says supported decision making was discussed, um, and where, um, where should this show up in an IEP? So we have not landed on that guidance yet, but we did get um, feedback from stakeholders.
0: That's great. Sounds like the ball is rolling, despite everything. Um, as busy as everything has been, you know, with a worldwide pandemic in the education system, so it's yes. a so great job on that, Sally. So, um, and Allison, you, uh, do you want to discuss a little bit about um, the training information and resources from the Department of Human Services perspective?
1: Yeah, as you mentioned, we've uh, put together a website and it's really, um, we see it as a portal of information with a lot of training and fact sheets and brochures and tools and success stories and other resources um, on supported decision-making. You can also link to many of those resources through the Oregon Department of Education uh, website as well. Um, And I think it's important to keep in mind that we're we're going to continue to cultivate um, some of the uh, tools and, um, you know, best practices and um, identify additional information for folks. So um, you might go there today and, and see some new information um, down the road as well. Great.
0: Could you give us an example, Ellison, of how these tools and resources um, can be used and where, where folks might want to start?
1: Yeah. And because, yeah, that website, it has all kinds of information. Um, I think a really good place to start um, is the either the life course tool that's titled you know, really self-explanatory in the name of a tool for exploring decision-making supports, um, and some have referred to it as the stoplight tool. Um, And then there's a similar one that's called the Stop, Look, and and Listen tool, and that one's a little bit more targeted for youth and transition students. Um, But this type of tool, it's a really great place to start. Um, They're good to help facilitate a conversation about the types of decisions a person and wants and needs support with and identify who who they want to have support them and how they want to be supported. Um, and then it can also be the, uh, in particular, this uh, transition one can be a great tool for developing IEP goals, um, for building self-advocacy and decision-making school. Uh, skills. Um, and then, you know, that information, it can always be documented and a little more formalized or in a less formalized way. Um, there's a lot of examples of supported decision-making agreements that you can find online out there and linked to on this uh, DHS um, websites. Um, and so, yeah, you can really take that information that you've, have um, in that conversation using the uh, stoplight tool, that life course tool, and then translate that into a written agreement if it makes sense for the person. Um, And then I definitely wanted to make sure to highlight that um, we're in development of some additional tools and resources and um, with our Interagency plan and goals, as Sally mentioned, we also plan to hold a community of practice um, where we can identify, um, just continue to identify best practices um, that people find as they're using the tools um, and then also use that as an opportunity to develop mentors who can then teach and share information with others on how to use supported decision making.
0: Yeah, and I think those are great, great things to highlight. We do have a training, as you mentioned, coming to the website. We are planning to add more um, localized organ based success stories. And in fact, if folks listening today know of a great success story, um, an example of how supported decision-making perhaps was used um, that could be highlighted in an employment-first success story, you know, please contact us and reach out through our email. Um, We're excited to to continue uh, promoting and just really educating and informing people about what supported decision decision making is. I did want to, you know, go back to one of the things you mentioned at the very beginning, Allison, when you just were talking about it, I wonder how many people, um, you know, listening to this podcast are thinking, well, this just seems sort of obvious, right? Like everybody, the examples you gave of sometimes you reach out to your parents, maybe, or a friend or a professional, depending on what the, the, the issue is that you you need help with. And I think that seems obvious to a lot of folks, but um, the fact of the matter is that, you know, it hasn't always been the case that people with disabilities are always put in the driver's seat uh, when it comes to decisions about their life. And so this is another, another tool to make sure that, um, that uh, practices, uh, policies, and, and our whole system really is person-centered.
1: Yeah, excellent yeah I think, like you say, you know, it really is um, the first place. It's the default, right? But I think a lot of times um, inadvertently, you know the the default can be overlooked. And so that's why we have to kind of call it out specifically so that so that we don't forget about it. Um, And move on to the other options first. So we really have to call it out and have make sure our tools and resources really um, cultivate it and empower the person to be in the driver's seat, like you say. Great. Thank you so much, Allison.
0: um, Sally, do you have anything you'd like to add about supported decision making or anything we might not have had a chance to touch on yet?
2: No, I think we've covered everything that um, I feel was really important. And, you know, again, want to speak to um, schools using um, person-centered planning, that schools also are um, having students conduct their IEPs. So we have student-led IEPs. And um, there's no reason to take them out of anything that we do. They should be included from an early age. And by the time we get to that age of majority and that transfer of rights, it's, you know, things should be decided and should be in place. It should just be a natural transition into everything they've already been doing. So this just, um, to me, is the process that has been being used during IEP meetings, but it helps us review it and remind them that there's resources, curriculum, and tools out there for them as um, family members to be able to look at and make a plan and maybe a little more solid plan by using some of the resources and tools and using the curriculum to train students around it.
0: Great. Thank you, Sally. Allison, anything else you'd like to add?
1: Um, I think just that I'm excited. I'm excited about the work that's been done and and what's to come and look forward to having our next podcast recording where um, perhaps we have somebody who's been out there um, using some of these tools um, be able to uh, feature on the podcast. That would be really exciting. Yes. Yes, that's, here's hoping
0: that will be a, a future podcast.
1: Yes. Okay. Thank you, both uh,
0: Sally and Allison for joining us. I really appreciate you being here. This has been the Employment First podcast. We'll talk to you later. Thank you.